0: ladies and gentlemen, Pastor Eli James here, this is Bloodlines for October 10th, I'm sorry, October 2nd, 2022, and the subject I have chosen for today is one of the most outstanding books documenting Jewish treachery ever written, and I put the link into the chat room, it's called The Nameless War by Archibald Maul, M-A-U-L-E, Ramsey, R-A-M-S-A-Y. And it is about the involvement of Jews, primarily, of course, Jewish bankers and Jewish communists, in the various uprisings, revolutions in European history. And he documents thoroughly the Jewish role in each one of these uprisings. Uh, something that is forbidden history for the most part until recently of course you know the Jews have been very successful in hiding their treachery from us and folks this is something that we have to really harp on and expose Jewish treachery against the West against Christian civilization and we're not going to stop, folks, because this new, this information needs to get out. We got, have to countermand, counter, contradict Jewish propaganda, and relate to truth. Uh, and the truth is out there, folks, as they used to say on that uh, science fiction. So, and, and, no, and that's right here at Eurofolk Radio. All right, Michael's not with us today. He sent me a text message that's saying he's under the ice, which I guess is a Swedish expression for our under the weather. So I texted him back, please don't drown. We need you, Michael. So I have uh, he said he's feeling better, but uh, not sure that he's well enough to do a show. So I'm going to start this episode because it's going to be a multi-part series, just like we did on the Tavistock Institute And again, I can't recommend the book on the Tavistock Institute by Dr. John Coleman highly enough. This is absolute must-reading. You have to countermand Jewish propaganda. Arm yourself with knowledge against these uh, perverts, these perverts of the fallen angels called Jews, all right? So, oh yeah, uh, let me also announce next week I will be in Kentucky for a Feast of Tabernacles wrap-up, uh, Last Great Day. So I'm not sure how many shows I'll be able to do. It all depends on uh, how many people show up and uh, whether I'll have access to the Internet while I'm there. So uh, I'll just play it by ear. If I can't do a show, I'll do a um, an announcement at the beginning of the time slot, uh, telling you whether or not this is going to be a replay or a live program. So I'll just play that by ear for next weekend. And then on the 22nd, I will be in Texas for a rally. And so I definitely will not be doing any live shows that weekend because it's so much traveling time. I'll be exhausted uh, when I get there. And uh, there's going to be a lot of people there. And I'll want to be fellowshipping with people and uh, you know just get the message out to them. And so I'll do re- replays that weekend, okay? So that's the weekend of October 22nd. So, in the meantime, we are here, live, in studio, which is my laptop computer, and this is The Nameless War by Archibald Mal Ramsay, And this is a, an introduction, I guess the publisher's introduction, or introduction to Mr. Ramsay. Captain Archibald Mall Ramsay was educated at Eton and the Royal Military College Sandhurst and served with the 2nd Battalion Coldstream Guards in the First World War until he was severely wounded in 1916, thereafter at regimental headquarters and the war office and the British war mission in Paris until the end of the war. From 1920, he became a member of the his his majesty's scottish bodyguard in 1931 he was elected a member of parliament for midlothian and Peeblesshire. arrested under regulation 18b on the 23rd of may 1940 he was detained without charge or trial oh sounds like america in a cell in brixton prison until the 26th of september 1944 On the following morning, he resumed his seat in the House of Commons and remained there until the end of that parliament in 1945. So they arrested a sitting or standing (laughs) member of parliament without charge and without trial. Can you imagine being arrested and not knowing what you're being arrested for? Of course... He knew what he was being arrested for. He he exposed the Jews too much, right? That's, that's his crime. Yes, Bavaria man, yeah, I will definitely be visiting Pastor Steve, and I will say hello to him for you and for all of us here at Eurofolk Radio, okay? So, very good, let's continue. Now, uh, the link I put in the chat room, it has to be downloaded, and you have to jump through hoops to actually download it. So, uh, But I, I highly suggest that you do, or order a physical copy. It's available you know, by, uh, by online. You can order a physical copy from various different booksellers. So, Introduction to the Nameless War. Here is the story that people have said would never be written in our time, the true history of events leading up to the Second World War, told by one who enjoyed the friendship and confidence of Mr. Neville Chamberlain, during the critical months between Munich and September 1939. There has long been an unofficial ban on books dealing with what Captain Ramsey calls the Nameless War, the conflict which has been waged from behind the political scene for centuries, which is still being waged and of which very few are aware. We're making our, doing our best to make people aware of this unhidden, silent war, silent genocide against the white race. There has long been an unofficial ban on books dealing with what Captain Ramsay calls the Nameless War. Hold on. I'm getting a message from Pastor Martins. I'll have to look at that later. Okay. Uh, The Nameless War, the conflict which has been waged from behind the political scene for centuries, which is still being waged and of which very few are aware The publishers of The Nameless War believe this latest exposure will do more than any previous attempt to break the conspiracy of silence. And, you know, as I was reading this earlier, I'm thinking, okay, uh, this should be part of a trilogy. Uh, Andrew Carrington Hitchcock's Synagogue of Satan, which deals with the Rothschilds from the uh, Napoleonic Wars to the present. This book deals with the uh, entire history of Jewish double-dealing and treachery and genocide of white people in Europe from the British Revolution uh, up to modern times. So what Andy doesn't cover, this this book covers. And of course, my book, The Great Impersonation, How the Antichrist Had Deceived the Whole World, which picks the story up in the Garden of Eden, <laughs> what the deception and... Uh, Rape of Eve, our great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother, and the two bloodlines that come out of the Garden of Eden. All right, and that goes up to, well, we're doing an updated version, which will be released sometime this year, of The Great Impersonation. Dave Geharry and I are working on that right now. And so that'll be, I don't have any more copies of the previous version, so I'm, uh, I'm working feverishly to get the new version done. And hopefully it will be done this year. But in any case, those three books will explain to you Jewish treachery from, what is it, six 6,000 B.C., 5,000 B.C. up to the present. And The Nameless War is absolute must-reading for all patriots. Absolute must-reading. So let's continue. The Nameless War reveals an unsuspected link between all the major revolutions in Europe from King Charles I's time to the abortive attempt against Spain in 1936. One source of inspiration, design, and supply is shown to be common to them all. These revolutions and the War of 1939 are seen to be integral parts of one and the same master plan. After a brief review of the forces behind the declaration of war and the worldwide arrests of so many who endeavored to oppose them, The author describes the anatomy of the revolutionary international machine, the machine which today continues the plan for supranational world power, the age-old messianic dream of international Jewry. All right, he said it. He said the word, Jewry. It is the author's belief that the machine would break down without the support of its unwilling Jews, and unsuspecting Gentiles, of course we know that's a fake word, uh, we'll just use the word goyim, as the Jews call us, and he puts forth suggestions for detaching these elements. Now there were several Chicagoans arrested uh, on fake charges. Elizabeth Dilling of Chicago was arrested for publishing the Talmud. She put out photocopies of the Talmud to expose Jewish treachery against the white race, against Christianity, and her book was called The Plot Against Christianity. And then there was Ulik Varanga, that was his uh, uh, pen name, I'm trying to remember his uh, real name, he was, uh, he was a uh, national socialist uh, from Chicago who was in Europe trying to fight against the Jews there he was arrested without charge and died mysteriously while in prison in Britain i'm sure they executed him and uh, so th- this is what you get for trying to expose jewish treachery they will knock you off if you're too much of a uh, strain on their on their budget right <laughs> okay sussex man put a oh okay apparently sussex man has uh, a version of it on his website, newensign.com. Uh, so if, if you want to go there and pick up that uh, that document, you can. Very good. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. All right. But let's continue here. So numerous people throughout history have been done away with, arrested without charge, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, that's still going on today, of course, because the, the Anglo-Defamation League, the ADL, which does... Everything it can to demonize Anglo Saxons is busy arresting people for putting stickers on rocks, right? And then ruining their lives, uh, taking, you know, emptying their bank accounts, etc., etc. This is happening constantly by Jewish intrigue in America. I'm sure it's happening in every other country in the world, and it's just not being reported, of course. So and that's one of the things i want to address when i'm in texas how to uh, t- how to uh, stop all of these you know these infringements on freedom of speech by organized jury and the oj crowd the kosher corner will not give up and we he need to start fighting back seriously we need to find people who are either lawyers willing to fight against jury or uh you know Assistants who know the law well enough to put a, a stop to these false arrests because uh, what happened to Gina Aversano in New York City, she put a, an anti-gay sticker on a rock and uh, she was arrested, treated horribly by the police there and now is doing time, although she's under house arrest. Uh, she's had to pay for her own way uh, during this time. Her, she's run out of money and she, she's going to have a really difficult time just, you know, staying alive, right? So uh, we're going to have to try to put up a GoFundMe site for her. And uh, that'll be part of my job in the next coming weeks, all right, to get that underway. So in the meantime, we have a serious fight. It's is coming down to the wire, folks. We're in the period where George Washington's prophecy is coming into play, where he saw had a three part dream. The first part was that the American Revolution would be successful for us against the British. Of course, the British sponsored by the Bank of England, and the black cloud from Africa, which in which the British sponsored black slavery here in America, and we had to deal with the problem in a civil war. And then the red cloud from Europe, namely the communist Jews from Russia and other parts of Europe. In, flinging or flinging themselves upon America like good parasites do and destroying our nation from within so this uh, this is the three part dream that Washington had or vision rather, and he said it's going to come down to fighting in the streets, fighting in the streets of America. That's what's going to happen folks. It's already started with of course the George Floyd riots. Where, and, uh, of course, every single day, Antifa and Black Lives Matter attack white people and they have no idea that the Jews are behind all of this, all right? So that's just a continuation of the nameless war that Ramsey is talking about here. Continuing, it is the author's belief that the machine would break down without the support of its unwilling Jews and unsuspecting goyim, and he puts forward suggestions for detaching these elements. Christians say, quote, Captain Ramsay, a Christian gentleman of unflagging courage, believed that the war with Germany was not conceived in the interests of Britain and could lead only to the extension of communist and Jewish power. Because he warned his fellow countrymen of the forces at work, he was put in prison without trial for four and a half years for a reason so preposterous that those who framed him dared not submit them to a court of law, okay, uh, from a publication called Truth. Quote, For years, Captain Ramsey had been a member of the British Parliament. His book is an analysis of the Jewish-Zionist war against Christian civilization, unquote. The Cross and the Flag. The Cross and the Flag was published by Gerald uh, L.K. Smith, who was a Klansman and Christian identity preacher, and friend of Henry Ford. Jews say, quote, There is no limit to the depths of human depravity. Captain Maul Ramsay seems to have made a very determined attempt to plumb those depths, unquote. This is from the Jewish Chronicle. One more quote here. The, pu- the publication of such a book at this time underlies, underlines the urgent need for the law to be reformed so as to make it a crime to preach racial hatred or publish libels on groups in the community, unquote, from the Daily Worker, which is, of course, a communist publication, and we all know that communism is Jewish, so, yeah, we can't have freedom of speech if it means you can say the truth about Jews, all right, okay? So, various number of editions here. It looks like the last one was in 1962 and published by Britain's publishing company, 111A West Westburn Grove, London. Contents, British Revolution, French Revolution, Russian Revolution, etc. So, let's get it. Dedication to the memory of those patriots who in 1215 at Runnymede signed Magna Carta, and those who in 1320 at Arbroath signed the Declaration of Independence. This book is dedicated. 27th July, 1952. So, here's a guy who was on the front lines, a member of of Parliament, and an A2 Chamberlain. So he's in a position to know who's behind the scenes destroying our civilization. All right, hats off to Pastor Ramsey. Okay, and Freebird said, uh, "Use Give, Send, Go." Okay, all right, Give, Send, Go. It's a Christian-based group. They still keep a percentage like GoFundMe, but they won't support BLM and let defensemen like GoFundMe. And they still won't uh, won't steal your money and do away with your accounts. Like, yeah, like the Gof- right, GoFundMe does to conservatives, and they did to the truckers in Canada. Right, they stole all the money from the truckers in camp. Thanks for that information, Freebird. Give, send, go. Thank you. Okay. All right. Let's continue here. All right. So, prologue. Edward I. Banished the Jews from England for many grave offenses endangering the welfare of his realm and lieges, which were to a great extent indicated in the statutes of Jewry enacted by his parliament in 1290, the commons playing a prominent part. See Appendix 2, and uh, appendices follow the last chapter. Uh, We'll read those later. The king of France very shortly followed suit, as did other rulers of Christian Europe. So grave did the situation for the Jews in Europe become that an urgent appeal for help and advice was addressed by them to the Sanhedrin, then located in Constantinople. And as I was saying last night, I haven't put the show up from last night yet, that that Napoleon inadvertently helped reform and reestablish the great Sanhedrin of Jewry when he called the rabbis to Paris from all over the known world to ask them whether they would assimilate with the rest of Europe. When they refused to assimilate, He turned against them and started calling them all kinds of names. And of course, after that event, the Jews turned 100% against Napoleon. Of course, they financed all sides of the Napoleonic Wars and uh, certainly was uh, the result, the result was Napoleon's undoing. Okay, let's continue. Uh, this appeal was sent over the signature of Kemor, Rabbi of Arles in Province on the 13th, January, 1489. The reply came in November 1489, which was issued over the signature of VSS VFF Prince of the Jews. Uh, I guess we don't have that person's name, okay? Because the Jews have two representatives of Jews in exile, which I don't know if that office still exists because they supposedly have returned to uh, their home in Pal Well, they're very close to Edom. <laughs> Again, right? Which is their true home, Edom, not Palestine. It has advised the Jews of Europe to adopt the tactics of the Trojan horse to make their sons Christian priests, lawyers, doctors, etc., and work to destroy the Christian structure from within. And I should get a copy of that whole letter. He just—it uh, uh, just looks like he only quotes one paragraph here. The first notable repercussion to this advice occurred in Spain in the reign of Ferdinand and Isabella. Many Jews were by then enrolled as Christians, but remaining secretly, Jews were working to destroy the Christian Church in Spain. So grave became the menace, finally, that the Inquisition was instituted in an endeavor to cleanse the country from these conspirators. Once again, the Jews were compelled to commence an exodus from yet another country whose hospitality they had abused. Trekking eastwards, these Jews joined other Jewish communities in Western Europe. Considerable numbers flowed on to Holland and Switzerland! Switzerland! and we know where the banking headquarters for the Jews was until they finally established themselves at the Bank of England. From now on, these two countries were to become active centers of Jewish intrigue. Jewry, however, has always needed a powerful seafaring nation to which to attach itself. Great Britain, newly united under James I, was a rising naval power, which was already beginning to sway the four corners of the discovered world. Here also there existed, including South Africa, here also there existed a wonderful field for disruptive criticism, for although it was a Christian kingdom, yet it was one most sharply divided as between Protestant and Catholic. Yeah, the Jews always exploit. Uh, you know, strife among ourselves and make it worse, and then they can do their skullduggery behind the scenes while Protestants and Catholics were fighting each other. A campaign for explaining this division and fanning hatreds between the Christian communities was soon in process of organization. How well the Jews succeeded in this campaign in Britain may be judged from the fact that one of the earliest acts of their creature and hireling, Oliver Cromwell... After executing the king according to plan was how, was to allow the Jews free access to England once more. Excuse me, I have to wet my whistle here. Ah, okay. The British Revolution. Quote, it was fated that England should be the first of a series of revolutions which is not yet finished. Unquote. He does not give the source of this quotation. Uh, But, okay, Benjamin Disraeli. With these cryptic words, Isaac Disraeli, father of Benjamin Earl of Beaconsfield, commenced his two-volume life of Charles I, published in 1851. (coughs) A work of astonishing detail and insight Much information for which he states was obtained from the records of one Melchior de Salome, French envoy in England during that period. Sounds like a Jew. This scene opens with distant glimpses of the British kingdom based upon Christianity and its own ancient traditions. These sanctions binding monarchy, church, state, nobles, and the people in one solemn bond on the one hand On the other hand, the ominous rumblings of Calvinism, oh boy, Calvin, who came to Geneva from France, where his name was spelled Calvin, possibly a French effort to spell Cohen, organized great numbers of revolutionary orders, not a few of whom were inflicted upon England and Scotland. Thus was laid the groundwork for revolution under a cloak of religious fervor, right? And of course, Cohen is a Jewish name. Note, at B'nai B'rith meeting in Paris, reported in Catholic Gazette, February 1936, he was claimed to be of Jewish extraction. So if the Jews claim he's a Jew, he's a Jew. On both sides of the tweed, these demagogues contracted all religion into rigid observance of the quote-unquote Sabbath. To use the words of Isaac Disraeli, quote, the nation was artfully divided into Sabbatarians and Sabbath breakers. Calvin deemed the Sabbath to have been a Jewish ordinance limited to the sacred people. He goes on to say that when these Calvinists held the country in their power, it seemed that religion chiefly consisted of Sabbatarian rigors and that a British Senate had been transformed into a company of Hebrew rabbins. (laughs) That's funny. Let me read this again. It seemed that the religion chiefly consisted of Sabbatarian rigors and that a British Senate had been transformed into a company of Hebrew rabbins. And later, in 1650, after the execution of the king, an act was passed inflicting penalties for breach of the Sabbath. Now, that's a serious breach of Sabbath, right? Between, should we go... Should we have a Sunday Sabbath or a Saturday Sabbath? I don't know. let's fight a war. Buckingham, Strafford, and Laud are the three chief figures around the king in these early stages. Men on whose loyalty to himself the nation and the ancient tradition of Charles can rely. Buckingham, the trusted friend of King James I, and of those who had saved his life at the time of the Gowrie conspiracy of ominous cabalistic associations, was assassinated in the early years of King Charles' reign under mysterious circumstances. Yes, assassination is the way the Jews gain power. First, they use their money, and then they assassinate anybody that stands in their way. So I didn't realize Buckingham, we have Buckingham Fountain here in Chicago, Named after this great patriot. Let's continue. St- Strafford, who had been in his early days inclined to follow the opposite faction, later left them and became a staunch and devoted adherent to the king. This opposition faction became steadily more hostile to Charles, and by the time that they were led by Pym, P-Y-M, and decided to impeach Strafford, the king, writes Disraeli, regarded this faction as his enemies and he states that the head of this faction was the Earl of Bedford. Walsh, the eminent Catholic historian, states that a Jew wine merchant named Roussel was the founder of of this family of Tudor times. In Tudor times, with the impeachment and execution of Stratford, the powers behind the rising Calvinist or Cohenist conspiracy began to reveal themselves and their focus the city of london well isn't this happening today folks we're seeing the jews are being exposed as the power behind the throne of resident biden and certainly the democratic party and we've known since the 1960s that the jews are behind this tremendous influx of illegal immigrants and of course, the anti-gun laws, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Everybody knows the Jews are behind it. So it's it's common knowledge. It's just that the kosher press and the kosher corner will never talk about Jewish power. So that's why we're here, folks. We have to expose Jewish power in America, the parasite behind the scenes, the par- the parasitic entity in your bowels making you sick. Let's continue. All right, the colonist conspiracy. At this time, there suddenly began to appear from the city armed mobs of operative... Oh, Antifa! Black Lives Matter! Commies. The medieval equivalent for workers, no doubt. Let me quote Disraeli. They were said to amount to 10,000. Yeah, like the George Floyd riot. At least 10,000. Burning and looting and killing. With warlike weapons, it was a militia for insurgency at all seasons and might be depended upon for any work of destruction at the cheapest rate. Right? At the cheapest mobocracy. As these sallied forth with daggers and bludgeons from the city, the inference is obvious that this train of explosion must have been long laid, unquote, and highly organized, just like the George Floyd riots. The Bolsheviks did the same thing in Russia, organized riots in one big city after another, and of course there was Jewish money behind these riots. And, of course, who do you think is importing all these Muslims from third world countries into America? You know, this is a racial war, folks. They're trying to destroy us by race mixing. Okay, long been laid. No doubt about it. These armed mobs of quote-unquote workers intimidated all and sundry, including both Houses of Parliament and the Palace at critical moments exactly on the model employed later by the sacred bands and the Marseillaise in the French Revolution. Isaac Disraeli draws again and again startling parallels between this and the French Revolution. Notably, in his passages on the press, quote, no longer under restraint, unquote, totally in Jewish hands, is what he means, and the deluge of revolutionary pamphlets and leaflets, he writes, quote, from 1640 to 1660, about 30,000 appear to have started up little publishing operations. And later, the collection of French revolutionary pamphlets now stands by the side of the French tracts of the age of Charles I. As abundant in number and as fierce in passion, this is of course the corrupt Jewish press in action, whose hand behind the curtain played the strings, ah, the Wizard of Oz, could post up a correct list of 59 commoners, branding them with the odious title of Straffordians or betrayers of their country, unquote. So we've got the same thing going on with the, the Jew press today. Anybody who doubts that the press is controlled by Jews is simply asleep and probably uh, an enemy, So we we need to wake these people up, especially the Judeo-Christians. So, folks, is this not happening all over again with the uh, uh, rioters for hire, right? All the staged acts of terrorism going on in America, blamed on Whitey, blamed on you and me, paid for by the perfidious Jew. This is reality, folks. This is reality. We've got to get the word out. We've got to enlighten our friends and relatives that this is what's happening. Who is behind the crown, behind President Biden and all of the Oh, man, the, the degeneracy of the Democratic Party and the Bidens themselves. is just unbelievable. Sex trafficking, child trafficking, warmongering. Like in Ukraine, acts of sabotage, using people for shields, that's what the Jews do, using innocent people as human shields in their war efforts. So, folks, uh, how can it get any worse, right? But it will continue to get worse until we rise up against this, this sabotage of our nation by the perfidious Jew. Let's continue. To do so, we must turn to such other works as the Jewish Encyclopedia, Sombart's work, The Jews and Modern Capitalism, oh, okay, wasn't familiar with that one, The Jews and Modern Capitalism, and others. From these, we learned that Cromwell, the chief figure of the revolution, was in close contact with the powerful Jew financiers in Holland, and was in fact paid large sums of money by Manasseh ben Israel, who, while Fernandez Carvajal, the quote-unquote great Jew, as he was called, was the chief contractor of the new model army, as George Soros is the chief financier of Black Lives Matter in Antifa, don't you know? In the Jews of England, we read, quote, 1643 brought a large contingent of Jews to England, their rallying point was the house of the Portuguese ambassador de Souza, a Morano, that is secret Jew, uh, a Murano is swine in Spanish. Prominent among them was Fernandez Carvajal, a great financier and army contractor. So how did these Jews get away with this? Well, obviously they had uh, spies everywhere, and because being bankers they were immensely wealthy, And so if somebody caught on to their game and wanted to attack them, their spies would certainly find out about it. And if if somebody did find out about them, they could arrange for that person's assassination very promptly. In January of the previous year, the attempted arrest of the five members had set in violent motion the armed gangs of operatives, uh, Antifa and Black Lives Matter, already mentioned from the city. Revolutionary pamphlets were broadcasted on this occasion, as Disraeli tells us, quote, bearing the ominous insurrectionary cry of, To Year tents, O Israel! <laughs> right, okay, Calvinism, folks! Calvinism! Revolutionary Calvinism! Cohenism. Shortly after this, the king and the royal family left the palace of Whitehall. The five members with armed mobs and banners accompanying them were given a triumphal return to Westminster. The stage was now set for the advent of Carvajal and his Jews and the rise of their creature Cromwell. The scene now changes. In fact, we do have copies of the correspondence between Cromwell and the Dutch Jews and Carvajal in which they don't say assassinate they don't use the word assassination in the correspondence but that correspondence does still exist in which Cromwell writes to the Jews uh, cannot cannot uh, move forward with uh, he doesn't use the word assassination but implies it something else has to happen before I can take take the crown okay so in other words the Jews have to arrange for some kind of revolution so that it can't be blamed on him. And so once that revolution has started, then Cromwell can move in as the the great hero taking back the throne for Britain, right? That's what he can do, or for Anglo-Saxon. The scene now changes. The Civil War has taken its course. The year is 1647. Naseby, N-A-S-E-B-Y, has been won and lost, so that must be a town. The king, or some sort of institution, maybe Chris can uh, enlighten us on that. The king is virtually a prisoner while treated as an honored guest at Holmby Okay, so, this is, uh, he's just awaiting his execution. I'm sure he realizes that this is what's going on. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, the Jews think the Jews are God's chosen people, and, of course, they're the devil's progeny, as we're trying to enlighten them with, okay? So, Naseby, uh, a, uh, yeah, uh, a name not familiar to me, the king is virtually a prisoner while treated as an honored guest at Holmby House. According to a letter published in plain English, that's the publication, a weekly review published by the North British Publishing Company and edited by the late Lord Alfred Douglas, on 3rd September 1921, which states, The learned elders have been in existence for a much longer period than they have perhaps suspected. My friend Dr. L.D. van Valkart of Amsterdam has recently sent me a letter containing two extracts from the synagogue of Mulheim, The volume in which they are contained was lost at some period during the Napoleonic Wars and has recently come into Mr. Van Valkert's possession. It is written in German and contains extracts of letters sent and received by the authorities of the Mulheim Synagogue. The first entry he sends me is of a letter received 16th June 1647 from O.C. that is Oliver Cromwell by Ebenezer Pratt, in return for financial support, will advocate admission of Jews to England. This, however, impossible while Charles living. Charles cannot be executed without trial, adequate grounds for which do not at present exist. Therefore, advise that Charles be assassinated. I was wrong, it does say it have the words assassin, <laughs> but it will have nothing to do with arrangements for procuring an assassin, though willing to help in his escape. In reply, was dispatched the following, 12th July, 1647, to O.C. by E. Pratt. Will grant financial aid as soon as Charles removed and Jews admitted. Assassination too dangerous. Charles shall be given opportunity to escape. His recapture will make trial and execution possible. The support will be liberal, but useless to discuss terms until trial commences. So they put the burden on Cromwell to arrange circumstances for the Jews to have a trial. So he has to be driven out of England and captured and brought back. As a supposed enemy of the crown, right, or as a, a supposed traitor to the Cohen Revolution. With this information now at our disposal, the subsequent moves on the part of the regicides stand out with new clearness. On 4th June 9, 1647, Cornet Joyce, acting on secret orders from Cromwell himself, and according to Disraeli, unknown even to General-in-Chief Fairfax, descended upon Holmby House with 500 picked revolutionary troopers and seized the king. According to Disraeli, quote, the plan was arranged on May 30th at a secret meeting held at Cromwell's house, though later Cromwell pretending that it was without his concurrence. This move coincided with a sudden development in the army, the rise of the levelers and rationalists, communists, Their doctrines were those of the French revolutionaries. In fact, what we know today as communism. These were the regicides who four times purged parliament till there was left finally 50 members, communists like themselves, known later as the rump. Yeah, the commies are the rump of the universe. To return to the letter from Boheim synagogue of the 12th June 1647, and its cunning suggestion that attempted escape should be used as a pretext for execution. Just such an event took place. On 12th November of that year, Hollis and Ludlow considered the flight as a stratagem of Cromwell's. Of Cromwell's. Isaac Disraeli states, Contemporary historians have decided that the king from the day of his deportation from Holmby to his escape to the Isle of Wight was throughout the dupe of Cromwell. Unquote. Little more remains to be said. Cromwell had carried out the orders from the synagogue, and now it only remained to stage the mock trial. Maneuvering? Yeah, sounds like the trial of Christ, doesn't it? Maneuvering, <laughs> and uh, I'll probably be doing a, a show about that, the mock trial of Christ in the near future. Maneuvering for position continued for some time. And it became apparent that the House of Commons, even in their partially purged condition, were in favor of coming to an agreement with the king. On 5th December 1648, the house sat all night and finally carried the question that the king's concessions were satisfactory to a settlement, unquote. Should such agreement have been reached, of course, Cromwell would not have received the large sums of money which he was hoping to get from the Jews. He struck again. On the night of December 6th, Colonel Pride, P-R-Y-D-E, on his instructions carried out the last and most famous purge of the House of Commons, known as Pride's Purge. On 4th January, the communist remnant of 50 members, the Rump, invested themselves with the supreme authority. On 9th January, a high court of justice to try the king was proclaimed. Two-thirds... Of its members were levelers from the army. Algernon Sidney warned Cromwell, quote, First, The king can be tried by no court. Second, No man can be tried by this court, unquote. So writes Hugh Ross Williamson in his Charles and Cromwell. And he adds a finishing touch to the effect that, quote, no English lawyer could be found to draw up the charge, which was eventually entrusted to an accommodating alien. (laughs) I was just going to say, well, they could certainly find a Jew to do it. Isaac Dorislaus, Dorislaus, D-O-R-I-S, D-O-R-I-S-L-A-U-S, Dorislaus, I guess is the pronunciation. Needless to say, Isaac Dorislaus was exactly the same sort of alien as Carvajal and Manasseh ben Israel and the other financiers who paid the protector his blood money. The Jews were once again permitted to land freely in England in spite of strong protests by the subcommittee of the Council of State, which declared that they would be a grave menace to the state and to Christian religion. Perhaps it is due to their protests that the actual act of banishment has never to this day been repealed. Banishing the Jews. But they came back anyway. Quote, The English Revolution under Charles I was unlike any preceding one. From that time and event, we contemplate in our history the phases of revolution. Unquote. Isaac Disraeli. Okay. And every communist revolution since has been financed by the Jews. And our people need to be made aware of this. Communism is Jewish. It reeks with Judaism. Continuing, there were many more to follow on similar lines, notably in France. In 1897, a further important clue to these mysterious happenings fell into Goy hands in the shape of the protocols of the elders of Zion. In that document, we read this remarkable sentence, quote, Remember the French Revolution. The secrets of its preparation are well known to us, for it was entirely the work of our hands. That's protocol number three. The elders might have made the passage even fuller and written, quote, Remember the British and French revolutions, the secrets of which are well known to us, for they were entirely the work of our hands. Yeah, they eliminated, they didn't want to talk about the British Revolution, which they financed as well. So this is Again, I highly recommend this work of nonfiction to every white person on the planet because we need to understand how the Jews operate. Okay, so the, the difficult problem of the subjugation of both kingdoms was still, however, unsolved. Scotland was royalist before everything else, and she had proclaimed Charles II king. Cromwell's armies marched around Scotland, aided by their Geneva sympathizers, dispensing Judaic barbarity, but Scotland still called Charles second king. He, moreover, accepted the Presbyterian form of Christianity for Scotland, and slowly but steadily the feeling in England began to come around to the Scottish point of view. Finally, upon the death of Cromwell, all Britain welcomed the king's restoration to the throne of England. In 1660 Charles II returned, but there was an important difference between the kingdom he had fled from as a boy and the one to which he returned as king. The enemies of kingship were entrenched within his kingdom now, and as soon as the stage should be set for renewing the propaganda against the papacy and so dividing once more uh, persons, all of whom considered themselves as part of Christ's church, the next attack would develop. The next attack would aim at placing the control of the finances of both kingdoms in the hands of the Jews, who were now firmly ensconced within. Charles evidently had no consciousness of the Jewish problem or plans, or the menace they held for his peoples, I guess he's talking about Scotland and England. The wisdom and experience of Edward I had become lost in the centuries of segregation from the Jewish virus a consciousness of the danger to the crown in placing his enemies in possession of the weapon of a popish plot, cry did he retain. Okay, so now they're going to divide Charles II's kingdom between Catholics and uh, and Protestants, whereas the previous uh, revolution was a division between uh, the Kohenites and, uh, and other Protestants. With James, and so we can see here, the Calvinists are not Protestants at all, they're Jews pretending to be Protestants. With James II's accession, the crisis could not be long delayed. The most unscrupulous pamphleteering and propaganda was soon in full swing against him, and it is no surprise to find that many of the vilest pamphlets were actually printed in Holland. This country was now quite openly the focus for all disaffected persons and considerable comings and goings took place during these years. And I think these are the years in which the uh, Dutch East India Company was operating. But let's continue. And of course, that's entirely Jewish. Stories were brought to the king that his own brother-in-law had joined those who plotted against him. Man, in-laws are always a threat, right? But he utterly refused to credit them. Or to take any action till news came that the expedition against himself was actually underway. <laughs> okay? Uh, you ha- always be suspicious of the Jews. If a crime has been committed, arrest the nearest Jew. The chief figure amongst those who deserted James at that crucial juncture was John Churchill. Oh, no! <laughs> John Churchill! What a what a family. First Duke of Marlborough. It is interesting to read in the Jewish Encyclopedia that this Duke for many years received not less than 6,000 pounds a year from the Dutch Jew Solomon Medina. The real objective of the Glorious Revolution was achieved a few years later in 1694 when the royal consent was given for the setting up of the Bank of England and the institution of the National Debt. There you go. And you want to guess to whom the national debt is always owed? This charter handed over to an anonymous committee the royal prerogative of minting money, converted the basis of wealth to gold, and enabled the international money lenders to secure their loans on the taxes of the country instead of the doubtful undertaking of some ruler or potentate which was all the security they could previously obtain. So, yes, the Bank of England was achieved during the reign of Charles II by Jews who used prostitutes to compromise British nobility to get them to play the game, to get them to go along with the scheme. That's why in the Book of Revelation... The international banking fraternity, the beast, the you know, eighth beast, is referred to as the great whore. The great whore, because they always use prostitutes to do their dirty work behind the scenes. This charter handed over to non, an anonymous committee, so the king didn't even know who these people were. From that time, economic machinery was set in motion which ultimately reduced all wealth to the fictitious terms of gold which the Jews control. And it doesn't matter what it; they, they always control the gold. They always control the gold because they demand payment in gold for the paper they put out. So that, that, that way, only their paper will survive as currency. That's how the scam works and drained away the lifeblood of the land, the real wealth which was the birthright of the British peoples. And there's a note inserted here uh, by a person named Jackie, uh, who I don't know who it is, so it's the editor's note. Note Germany's most successful economic system was not backed by gold. He eluded the blood sucking grip of the Zionist Jew money masters, therefore Germany must be destroyed. And Adolf Hitler vilified down through the ages, so the uninformed will demand their government return to the gold standard. Of course, there's a difference between a government gold standard and a banker's gold standard. Most people don't get that. Let's continue. The political and economic union of England and Scotland was shortly afterwards forced upon Scotland with wholesale corruption. And in defiance of formal protests from every county and borough, The main objects of the Union were to suppress the Royal Mint in Scotland and to force upon her, too, responsibility for the national debt. Okay, So there, the Royal Mint in Scotland, that was a gold and silver printed by the government. When the government issues gold and silver as money, that's fine. The Jews don't earn any interest on that. They want banknotes which earn interest. That's why the the Jews always make, go, uh, make war on gold and silver. They have to take those items out of circulation and substitute their paper, which bears interest. The grip of the moneylender was now complete throughout Britain. The danger was that the members of the new joint parliament would sooner or later, in the spirit of their ancestors, challenge this state of affairs. To provide against this, therefore, the party system was now brought into being, frustrating true national reaction and enabling the wire pullers to divide and rule, using their newly established financial power to ensure that their own men and their own policies should secure the limelight and sufficient support from their newspapers, pamphlets, and banking accounts to carry the day. Ah, Democrats and Republicans, right? Right. Gold was soon to become the basis of loans ten times the size of the amount deposited, right? The old Jewish racket, lending money out based on gold on deposit and issuing fictitious notes. It's fractional reserve banking system. In other words, 100 pounds in gold would be legal security for 1,000 pounds of loan, paper loan. At 3%, therefore, 100 pounds in gold could earn 30 pounds interest annually with no more trouble to the lender than keeping a few ledger entries. Yeah, they basically don't have to work. The owner of the 100 pounds of land... Uh, this has got to be a misprint here. The owner of 100 pounds of gold, however, still must work every hour of daylight in order to make perhaps 4%. This is a confusing sentence here. I don't know what uh, how, how this got through. Anyway, the end of the process must only be a matter of time. The moneylenders must become millionaires. Those who own and work the land, the Englishmen and the Scotsmen, must be ruined, yes. The process has continued inexorably till now when it is nearly completed. It is definitely completed. The Jews have gained total control of planet Earth with these money-lending schemes. And the vast majority of people are none the wiser. The average American thinks that the Federal Reserve Bank is actually part of the government. (laughs) Okay, It's incredible how the Jewish press has kept people so incredibly dumbed down. It has been hypocritically camouflaged by clever propaganda as helping the poor by mul- mulcting mulcting the rich, right? Oh yeah, let's let's make the rich pay more taxes, which never happens. That's how the Democratic Party it, it, Democratic Party operates operates on unkept promises. Period. That's all it is: unkept promises, and people still believe. That the Democratic Party taxes the rich. No, it doesn't. They are the rich. It has been, in reality, nothing of the kind. It has been, in the main, the deliberate ruination of the landed classes. Remember 2008? The leaders among the, the nations and their supplanting by the Jew financiers and their hangers on. Okay? Because they've been doing this in America since the Civil War. Now, the French Revolution. The French Revolution of 1789 was the most startling event in the history of Europe since the fall of Rome. A new phenomenon then appeared before the world. Never before had a mob apparently organized successful revolution against all other classes in the state, under high-sounding but quite nonsensical slogans, and with methods bearing not a trace of the principles enshrined in the in those slogans, right? Tax the rich. But that never happens. Never before had anyone's section of any nation conquered all other sections. And still less swept away every feature of the national life and tradition from king, religion, nobles, clergy, constitution, flag, calendar, and place names to coinage. Yeah, it was a complete destruction of French civilization. Such a phenomenon merits the closest attention, especially in view of the fact that it has been followed by identical outbreaks in many countries. The main discovery that such an examination will reveal is this fact, quote, the revolution was not the work of Frenchmen to improve France, it was the work of aliens whose object was to destroy everything which had been France. This conclusion is borne out by the references to quote-unquote foreigners in high places in the Revolutionary Councils. Not only by Sir Walter Scott, but by Robespierre himself. We have the names of several of them, and it is clear that they were not British or Germans or Italians or any other nationals. They were, of course, Jews. Let us see what the Jews themselves have to say about it. Quote, "remember the french revolution to which it was we who gave the name of great the secrets of its preparation are well known to us for it was wholly the work of our hands protocols of zion number 7 Quote, we were the first to cry among the masses of the people the words liberty equality fraternity the stupid gentile or stupid goyim pole parrots flew down from all sides onto these baits" and with them carried away the well-being of the world. The would-be wise men of the Gentiles, stupid Goyim, were so stupid that they could not see that in nature there is no equality, (laughs) and there cannot be freedom, meaning, of course, freedom as understood by socialists and communists, freedom to wreck your own country, unquote. Protocols of Zion, number one. With this knowledge in our possession, we shall we shall find we possess a master key to the intricate happenings of the French Revolution. The somewhat confused picture of characters and events moving across the screen, which our history books have shown us, will suddenly become a concerted and connected human drama. When we begin to draw parallels between France of 1789, Britain of 1640, Russia of 1917, Germany and Hungary of 1918-1919, to 1919, and Spain of 1936, we shall feel that drama grip us with a new and personal sense of reality. Yes, because we are the target of this ongoing revolution financed by Jews. Yes, Swamp Fox, deracination of founding peoples. Yeah, that's what they're doing. They're destroying our race in every means possible. This book, The Nameless War, by Colonel Ramsey, should be handed out to every friend and relative. Let's continue. And it's available online, and uh, Chris Pete has it at his website. Okay. So uh, Chris Peed put the link uh, in the chat room a little bit earlier. Okay. So, <laughs> uh, lost my place here. Okay. Okay. Next quotation here is, revolution is a blow struck at a paralytic. Yeah, they have to paralyze us first before they can destroy us. They have to make the country into an insane asylum with propaganda. And while we're wandering around like zombies, then they strike. They've been trying to do this here in America now since 1913. Can you imagine that they have still failed to destroy us? Why? Because America is God's kingdom here on earth. As long as true Christianity abides here, which it does in the form of Christian identity, the Jews can't destroy us. As long as the remnant survives, Yahweh will protect us. Wherever his remnant survives, Yahweh will protect us. And so that's what's happening here in America. And what we know and understand and believe in the faith we have will eventually rub off on our kinsmen here in America and hopefully in Europe as well. But Europe has been so thoroughly socialized and communized and deracinated because of what? Apathy? Just failure to observe what's going on? The liberalism? which is liberty, equality, fraternity, right? That false belief that all the races are equal and if we all blend together in one slightly brownish tone of race, there will be no more race. No, there will. Folks, it's not going to happen. At the Jewish ideal, they have to destroy the white race because they're afraid that we... We will, as long as there is one white man and woman, a pair alive, they will breed and more white children. They have to destroy our race. That is the objective. People, wake up and understand that that is the objective of the international Jew, is to destroy our race. They will not rest until they accomplish that agenda. Therefore, we have to harden ourselves. And be ready for anything. The George Floyd riots were a taste of what the Jew is capable of doing. Okay, folks? That's just a taste of what the Jew is capable of doing. So, keep your powder dry. (laughs) Keep your powder. Be ready to fight because it will be a door-to-door fight. Just as has been in every communist revolution. They have simply not been able to muster the army to do that yet here in America. They did it in the Civil War. They did it in the Civil War, in which 600,000 of our people perished. North against South. A huge destruction of our race by the perfidious Jew. They They'd like to do that again. They'd like to do that again, and they're trying to find an excuse. It's left versus right. They're trying to find a means by which to divide us. And of course, left versus right is a good means of division. However, there simply aren't enough intelligent leftists that have, that believe in guns to really strike at us. The guns are with the conservatives. And it's gonna stay that way. You know, they actually, they're trying to arm, what, uh, I forget the number, the total number of IRS agents that they're arming? What is it, 40,000? But that's thats thats a pittance. There's no way 40,000 armed IRS agents can do any damage. What are they going to do? Uh, go to your house and say, we need to go, go through your tax return. <laughs> bang, bang, bang. If that, as soon as that happens, the word will get out that these armed IRS agents are killing people. So that ain't going to happen. Or do you, are they going to attract you down to the nearest IRS office and say, you know, we need to check out your tax returns and uh, have a gun in the the drawer just in case you, you, you put up a fuss? I mean, the word's going to get out. What are these IRS agents going to do? So they they have to send in the United Nations, the United Nations troops. That's their only alternative because China is in such great disarray that it will not, not ever, field an army. All of the positions of the officer corps of the Chinese army are filled by people who have paid bribes Hence, they don't know anything about military strategy. The civil unrest in China is growing worse by day. They can't even control the people in their own country, let alone field an army. And where are they going to get the money from? International trade has ground to a halt. They could just print more money to pay the troops, but that that will only work so far. You know. How are you going to put these on transports? So it's simply not going to work. So the only choice the Jews have is to keep on brainwashing college students that they can use to create an insurrection and hopefully use the United Nations troops to destroy America. That's my thinking. That's the only way they have left. Because COVID-19 is fizzling out. People are refusing to take the jab. So they were hoping to kill way more of us with the jab. And that hasn't worked out as well. So folks, the the longer they take in trying to physically destroy America, the faster our people will wake up. So they have to do something soon. They have to do something soon. The longer they delay, the more American revolutionaries, Christian revolutionaries, will come out of the woodwork. Let's continue. The process of organizing revolution is seen to be firstly the infliction of paralysis, yeah, total brainwashing, and secondly the striking of the blow or blows. So they're still in the process of brainwashing, and they need to create more zombies, but that process is failing. It's no longer working. It is for the first process, the production of paralysis, that the secrecy is essential. Its outward signs are debt, loss of publicity control, and the existence of alien-influenced secret organizations in the doomed state. And we've got plenty of those working in America. But they're simply not big enough. America is too big a country for such a plot to succeed. Debt, particularly international debt, is the first and overmastering grip. So the Federal Reserve Bank has existed since 1913 and still hasn't destroyed America. America. The country is simply too big. Through it, men in high places are suborned, and alien powers and influences are introduced into the body politic. When the debt grip has been firmly established, control of every form of publicity and political activity soon follows, together with a full grip on industrialists. Yeah, they've had that. They've had that since 1913, and they still haven't destroyed America. And their grip on the media is Waning. It's waning tremendously as you know, Governor DeSantis and the Governor of Texas have been busing and, and, and planing illegal aliens to Martha's Vineyard and other liberal strongholds where these hypocrites say, Oh, you're using people as a political football. Oh, and the, and the Democrats haven't been doing that? No, they're the ones responsible for this influx of illegal aliens. Talk about hypocrisy. Brilliant move by DeSantis, exposing the hypocrisy of the liberals. And then, on top of it, the the death grip of fentanyl, which is being imported across the southern border, produced in China, uh, sent to Mexico and other Central American countries, shipped across the southern border, where young men, ages eighteen to forty five, are the number one victim. Of the fentanyl crisis again, the Jews have been the world's drug dealers, illegal drug dealers, since the days of the Dutch East India Company, and they have not relinquished control of the illicit drug trade ever since. So, but again, when you hire thugs to, and in this case, you know the the Mexican drug lords. To do your dirty work, you know how do you how do you control these thugs? You don't control them; they're, they're lawless. So you might use them for one purpose or another, but if when, when blows are struck, they'll be useless. You know, if they get returned fire from the American gun owner, they will flee back to Mexico. But they're trying to arrange for that. Good luck, good luck, Rothschild. See if you can do it. The stage for the revolutionary blow is then set. The grip of the right hand of finance established the paralysis. While it is the revolutionary left that holds the dagger and deals the fatal blow. Moral corruption facilitates the whole process. By 1780, financial paralysis was making its appearance in France. The world's big financiers were firmly established. Quote, they possessed so large a share of the world's gold and silver stocks that they had most of Europe in their debt, certainly France, unquote. So writes Mr. McNair Wilson in his Life of Napoleon, and continues on page 38, quote, A change of a fundamental kind had taken place in the economic structure of Europe, whereby the old basis had ceased to be wealth and had become debt. In the old Europe, wealth had been measured in lands, crops, herds, and minerals. But a new standard had now been introduced, namely, a form of money to which the title credit had been given, unquote. No, it's debt money. Debt money. Debt money is what is destroying Christian civilization, and the Christians do not realize it. Simply do not realize it. They think it's real money. And Swamp Fox puts in this note here, which is uh, what happens to our people. We start from bondage and go to spiritual faith, from spiritual faith to great courage, from courage to liberty, from liberty to abundance, from abundance to complacency, complacency to apathy. We're definitely in the apathy mode apathy to dependence and we're getting totally dependent now on the international banksters. Dependence back into bondage. That's eighteen eighty seven Alexander Tyler. So they have not completed the bondage aspect yet. Even after a hundred and uh yeah twenty a hundred and ten years of total control of our economy, they have still not been able to take total domination of America thanks to the Christian remnant that remains faithful to Yahweh and Yahshua and faithful to the U.S. Constitution, which did not admit Jews as citizens, folks. It did not admit Jews as citizens. So we need a constitutional revival, a Christian revival, and that's how the first American Revolution was started, by a Christian revival. And we need to do another Christian revival. And we'll see how the Jews can handle that, if they can. I don't think they can. Our people are waking up. I see it every, If they're not awake to the Jew question, they're awake to the total corruption of our government by the Republicans and the Democrats, or as I like to call them, rhinocrats. But let's continue. The debts of the French kingdom, though substantial, were by no means insurmountable, except in terms of gold. And had the king's advisors decided to issue money on the security of the lands and the real wealth of France, the position could have been fairly easily righted. Well, that's if they could figure out who is, uh, you know, subverting the whole system. The international Jew would not give up. As it was, the situation was firmly gripped by one financier after another, who either could not or would not break with the system imposed by the international usurers. Well, again. The hazard circular issued by the Jews during uh, the American Civil War stated that those only a few people understand how the system works and those who work with us will never reveal how it works while the rest of the people are simply too dumb to understand how usury and debt money control the economy by a chosen few and not by the government. So the people assume that the, the money is issued by the government. No, it's not issued by the government. It's issued by Jewish usurers. Debt-bearing notes. That's why they murdered Kennedy. That's why they murdered Lincoln. That's why they murdered, uh, who is the governor of Louisiana? Huey Long. That's why they assassinate our politicians, those who understand the economics of the situation And try to do what's right. These are the most likely to be assassinated. Unfortunately, we don't have any politicians like that at the present. Who would would risk his own life to declare freedom from Jewish usury? No politician would dare to do that. So, we are going to have to rise up ourselves and get the job done. We're going to have to have another American Revolution. There's no doubt about it because there's no politician with the guts and probably not even the brains to do so. Ron Paul was an extreme disappointment. He preached, you know, get rid of the Fed. But then when he had Ben Bernanke before Congress, he asked them softball questions. Oh, are you having a nice day, Mr. Bernanke? And he said, oh, I'm having a very good day. Uh, are you going to continue to issue debt notes? Oh, yes, we will continue to issue debt notes. Uh, Why do you ask? Well, I was just wondering. Oh, yeah, we, we will continue to do that because the country depends on our debt notes. Oh, thank you very much. You may go. That was the level of questioning that Ron Paul gave to Ben Bernanke when he had him before Congress. A total phony. A total phony. Right? Or... He, he Maybe he smelled some gunpowder. We, we don't know. In any case, he had him in his grip and failed to do anything with it. So let's continue. Under such weakness or villainy, the bonds of usury could only grow heavier and more terrible, for debts were in terms of gold or silver, neither of which France produced. And who were the potentates of the new debt machine? these manipulators of gold and silver who had succeeded in turning upside down the finances of Europe and replacing real wealth by millions upon millions of usurious loans? The late Lady Queensborough, in her important work, Occult Theocracy, gives us certain outstanding names, taking her facts from Les Antisemitisme* by the Jew Bernard Lazare in 1894. In London, she gives the names of Benjamin Goldschmidt, G-O-L-D-S-M-I-D, and his brother Abraham Goldsmith, Moses Makata, their partner, and his nephew Sir Moses Montefiore as being directly concerned in the financing of the French Revolution, along with Daniel Itzig of Berlin, and his son-in-law David Friedlander and Hertz Cerfbier of Alsace. C-E-R-F-B-E-E-R. So, this This book, The Nameless War, is an excellent resource of getting the names of the Jews directly involved in financing these various revolutions. That is the value of this book, The Nameless War. I certainly encourage everybody to download this book and circulate it among your friends and relatives. Let's continue. These names... Oh, wait a minute. Uh... Yeah, these names recall the protocols of Zion. And turning up number two twenty, we read, quote, The gold standard has been the ruin of states which adopted it, for it has not been able to satisfy the demands for money, the more so as we have removed gold from circulation as far as possible. Yeah, they have a banker's gold standard, which means that they demand to be paid in gold even though you borrow their paper money from them. That's the Jewish gold standard. The government gold standard is totally different. Because in America, under the Constitution, only silver coin, if I remember, 371.25 grains of silver, is defined as a dollar. It's a weight of silver. That's what the money is supposed to be. But the Jews always conspire to take real money out of circulation, as this statement here proves. Let's continue. And again, loans hang like a sword of Damocles over the heads of rulers who come begging with outstretched palm, unquote. And of course, President Andrew Jackson got rid of the Second National Bank who was doing exactly these things. Using gold as a means to issue you know, at uh, ten time, issued 10 times the value in paper money what that gold is worth, thus therefore inflating the money supply. That's how they do it. It's really a a simple trick. But the economics textbooks don't talk about this. And again, quote, Loans, oh, I read that already. No words could describe more aptly what was overtaking France. Sir Walter Scott, in his Life of Napoleon, Volume 1, thus describes the situation, quote, these financiers use the government as bankrupt prodigals are treated by usurious money lenders, yeah, who feeding their extravagance with the one hand, with the other ring out their ruined fortunes, the most unreasonable recompenses for their advances, yeah. So easy money borrowed into circulation, you you buy yourself a, a hundred thousand dollar yacht, a million dollar mansion, and then. While the economy goes back into disarray, you lose your job, you lose your bank account, and all of a sudden the Jews confiscate your property. How'd that happen? How did that happen? It's the game they play. Their master's at it. By a long succession of ruinous loans and the various rights granted to guarantee them, the whole finances of France were brought to total confusion, unquote. King Louis's chief finance minister during these last years of growing confusion was Necker, N-E-C-E-R, C-K-E-R, a, a, quote, a Swiss of German extraction, son of a German professor of whom McNair Wilson writes, quote, Necker had forced his way into the king's treasury as a representative of the debt system, owning allegiance to that system, unquote. Oh, oh, like our Federal Reserve has financier advisors to presidents, right? Oh, thank you, Wilson. Thank you, President Wilson, for establishing that, right? Thank you very much for putting the entire nation in debt to these Jewish usurers. We can easily imagine what policy that allegiance inspired in Necker. And when we add to this the fact that his previous record was that of a daring and unscrupulous speculator, (laughs) we can understand why the national finances of France under his baneful aegis rapidly worsened, so that after four years of his manipulations, the unfortunate king's government had contracted an additional and far more serious debt of £170 million. For what purpose? Did France benefit from this debt? Absolutely not. Remember in the old days when you had to save your money to buy a car? No! Now you just get a loan and put yourself in more and more debt. You get a loan for this, you get a loan for that. You get a loan to buy your groceries. It's all purchased by debt money. One of these days, that debt is called in. And that's when you have an absolute total collapse. And the only reason the Jews haven't called in a debt right now is because there's too much confusion. They don't have control of the entire economy yet. They will bankrupt their own corporations if they call in the debts right now. You know, like Walmart, uh, PayPal, etc., The Jews control all these giant corporations. If they pull the plug and crash the economy, all these operations will go bankrupt as well. They will cease to have any impact on the society. And what will be left is the American gun owner. (laughs) That's what's going to be left. That's why they're holding in their back pocket the central bank digital, digital currency by which they can manipulate every... Every purchase and sales on the planet, not just America. And by that they hope to gain total control. But that's a very iffy proposition. Even if we go to back to barter, the economy will still operate. The amazing thing here, the amazing thing, it only took 10 years to destroy France. With regard to America, they've been trying for 110 years and still haven't succeeded. That's the encouraging thing, folks. Stay strong. Praise Yahweh. Pass the ammunition. The day is at hand. Yahweh bless everybody. Bye-bye. Beep.